base things of the world and the despise God has chosen, the things that are not, so that he might nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. Even Israel, and particularly Israel, as Jesus comes, he comes to the lowly, he comes to those who would be considered second-rate Jews, those who had, who had allowed themselves to be, to be polluted by the other nations, and he comes and he proclaims salvation to them. As we will see, the light is among you. I am here as the light, the one who proclaims the truth. Respond to me. Hello and welcome again to Grace Maryville Weekly, which is a podcast ministry of Grace Community Church located in downtown Maryville, Tennessee. The sermon you are about to hear is a part of a sermon series presented by Pastor Chris Reiser from the book of Matthew. Pastor Chris has sought to demonstrate that Jesus is the King, which is the overall theme of the book of Matthew. It is our goal to provide messages on Monday and Friday, weekly from the pulpit at Grace Community Church, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, and to call everyone to repent and believe. Let's listen now as Pastor Chris works exegetically through the text. Second Corinthians, excuse me, First Corinthians chapter 1. When Jesus comes, he comes to the lowly. He comes to those who would be viewed by others as not worthy of the gospel. And by the way, if you're filling out your outline, as Jesus leaves Nazareth, Jesus settles in Capernaum. And next is the king fulfills prophecy. But in, in 1 Corinthians, Paul reveals to the proud Corinthians who thought really that the reason that they had salvation or that they were believers was because there was something inherently good about them. They considered themselves to be powerful and gifted and mighty and intelligent, all of these things. And, and Paul undoes their thinking when he says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning in verse 25. He says, but the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong, the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen, the things that are not, so that he might nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. Even Israel, and particularly Israel, as Jesus comes, he comes to the lowly. He comes to those who would be considered second-rate Jews, those who had, who had allowed themselves to be, to be polluted by the other nations. And he comes and he proclaims salvation to them. As we will see, the light is among you. I am here as the light, the one who proclaims the truth. Respond to me. Really, in a way, saying to his people, you think you're mighty, you think you're noble, you think you as Jews are something special, and that you have the right to discriminate not only against pagan nations, but also against your own people. There's all levels of you. you. You know, the more pure Jews, the less pure, and you're constantly living in your arrogance, considering that you have the right to be saved. You have the right to be in the kingdom. We discussed this a lot when we were talking about John the Baptist. But this is always our wrestle. And this is the fundamental wrestle of the human heart. I'm worthy. I deserve to be in the kingdom. I have, Jesus should accept me, God, you know, whoever it might be. I should be accepted by God. I'm good enough. I am acceptable enough. I am, as it were, wise and mighty and noble. And even though when you talk to people, they won't say it to you in those terms. They won't tell you, look how good and how great I am. Look how much I deserve. At least they won't often say that. But always it is what? The comparison. I deserve because I'm better than 
because I'm mightier than so-and-so. I'm smarter than so-and-so. I knew what I was supposed to do, and they didn't know. And Jesus, in the very nature of his ministry, even as he starts in the land of Zebulun and Naphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, he starts by saying, even to you, my people, those who think that they deserve to be in the kingdom, those who think that they can discriminate even against themselves as to who is more worthy, I am the one who makes everyone worthy. I am the one who is, who the grounding of salvation is in me, not in you. I choose those who are not wise, not mighty, not powerful, so that I might shame the world itself, so I might flip the wisdom of the world on its head. And I, I want to remind you of that because there, it is so often for us one where we begin to grow proud ourselves. Well, look what the Lord has done. I'm, I'm in Christ. I'm, I'm one of his chosen can't imagine how that would ever cause someone to be arrogant, but it is amazing that that doctrine, the doctrine of the fact that we've been chosen from before the beginning of time, that God has set his love upon us as his children, that somehow that has caused a whole whole section of those who believe that precious doctrine to act it out in arrogance. As though somehow, look, I've been chosen, even though they know better, and even though they would say I'm nothing and I'm a sinner, yet somehow there's this arrogance attached to the doctrine of predestination and election that is grievous. And if there's any of you sitting here this morning who, who somehow, having discovered those doctrines, somehow have begun to feel like you are elevated above other members of Christianity, above other churches, above other people, then you need to repent. Because the fact that God chose you from before the beginning of time should only humble you to the dust. And when you interact with other people who don't believe that, who wrestle even with that doctrine, within Christendom especially, you should be the most humble person on the face of the earth. Not many mighty, not many noble. You are Galilee of the Gentiles. That's who we are. That's who we all are. None of us deserve anything that has to do with salvation. So please remember that. And please might we be so careful as a church. Everybody else needs to be said. That's Galilee of the Gentiles out there. Look, look at those, you know, that sub-level Christianity that's out there. Boy, boy, they really need help. Let us be very careful. Yes, we hold our doctrine strongly. Yes, we understand how a church, by the words grace through his word, how a church ought to operate. And lest, however, we become proud that the Lord would, would remove completely our influence and our effect. That's what will happen if we become arrogant. And I just want to remind us of that. There are special needs within each church, special ways the shepherd seeks to help his church not sin. Well, this is one of them, and I just would like to make that point as we consider the nature of Jesus coming to Galilee of the Gentiles, that you and I and this church, there's nothing in us that said, God said, well, I'm going to bless them, and I'm going to bless your ministry, and because you know so much and are so much, I'm going to use you. No, he uses us in spite of ourselves. He uses us because he is great. He uses us because he is the one who provides everything concerning salvation. Verse 14, then, in our text, the king fulfilling this prophecy this was to fulfill that which was spoken through Isaiah the prophet, the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, by way of the sea and beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light, and those who were sitting in the land in the shadow of death, upon them a light dawned. Coming of Jesus to this region is significant because it brings the light of truth and thus the light of salvation to those who are dead. Now that's everyone. Right? Jesus came as the light of the world, which we will see in just a moment. So everyone, when Jesus came, was living in darkness. Everyone was living in death. And yet again, Jesus comes to this particular reason, region as the darkest region, a darker region. He could not have picked a darker region within his own ethnic people, within the nation Israel. And that is why he comes. 
And again, he comes, Matthew ties this directly to the, to the prophecies of Scripture. That is why I've, I've focused a bit here on geography and, and chronology, because his very movement in the, in, within the nation itself, the very places where he, be, where he was born, where, where he escaped to after he was, had the great danger to himself, he escapes to Egypt, he goes back to Nazareth. Chapter 1 and 2 already showed us that all of that is part of God's sovereign plan predicted in the Old Testament. Well, this is no different. The place where Jesus begins his ministry, essentially, where he begins the, the official portion of his preaching, teaching, and healing ministry is, was predicted in Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah 9 verse 1 says, But there will be no more gloom for her who is in anguish. In earlier times he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt, but later on he will make it glorious. By way of the sea, on this other side of the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. So Jesus is really, it's a somewhat loose quotation of this particular passage. It doesn't directly correspond to the Septuagint, the LXX, the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament that was written in about 200 BC. It doesn't correspond directly to the Masoretic text, the direct Hebrew. So Jesus is essentially, it's a free quotation. He's taking the quotation, the essence of which was to predict that, that God would again show favor to his people, and that essentially he would begin with Zebulun and Naphtali. It seems that in Isaiah 9, that's referencing, it's looking forward to the time of the millennium, when Jesus restores his people completely. But each time, remember, we've traced back the fact that what happens when Jesus comes to establish his kingdom on earth, that is his physical kingdom, all of that is related to his coming and dying for us, establishing his spiritual kingdom or the foundation for his physical kingdom by dying, by rising again. And so the prophecies that point ahead to the millennial period all have their grounding in what Jesus did on the cross, which is why it can sometimes be so hard to pull them apart. And Jesus, and Matthew was saying, excuse me, Matthew was quoting this, and Matthew is using this to say, look, Jesus is coming, and even where he started, the blessing where it begins, it relates to his first coming, something that might not have even been recognized by Isaiah himself, but something which Matthew draws out under the inspiration of the Spirit, that even the beginning of the ministry of Jesus, the place where the, the first blessing would come to Israel, even that is predicted hundreds of years beforehand. What an amazing thought. Nothing about Jesus' ministry, nothing that he did was not carefully according to an already prepared and designed sovereign plan. Even though he interacts with the circumstances, he uses wisdom in the power of the Spirit according to the principles of the Word, all of those things are true. Exercising, as we might call them, free choices, choices that he desired to do, his own nature and own will being exercised to accomplish things, yet all of that within God's sovereignty to perfectly fulfill every prophecy that we find in the Old Testament. An amazing thought. And that, the, that that prophecy was that the lowly Galileans would be the first to hear from their king. John MacArthur says, just as Isaiah had predicted eight centuries earlier, the despised, sin-darkened, and rebellious Galileans were the first to glimpse the Messiah, the first to see the dawning of God's new covenant. Not mighty and beautiful Jerusalem, the queen city of the Jews, but Galilee of the Gentiles would hear first the Messiah's message. Not the learned, proud, and pure Jews of Jerusalem, but the mongrel, downcast, non-traditional mixed multitude of Samaria, and Galilee had that great honor. To those who were the neediest and who were most likely to recognize their need, Jesus went first. And as I mentioned, we are the Galileans. Not only are we certainly non-Jews, Gentiles in the, in, in, in the clearest definition of that term, 
But we are also those who are not mighty, not worthy, having nothing to hold up before God that He would somehow choose us or ever minister to us. I mean, have you ever thought about that? Many of you grew up in Christian homes. Did you have some right to do that? Was there something good about you that caused you to be born into a Christian home where faithful parents prepared you for, for salvation by reading to you the Scriptures? Not by baptizing you or putting you in a certain church, but by giving you the truth of the Scriptures. That's how they prepared you and they lived that truth out for you. Nothing that you did caused you to deserve that. Nothing that was inherent within you. Simply God's gracious work to work through the Word of God in your life. And then that your parents would have been in churches that would have brought them the truth of the gospel and, and helped them to understand and know the Word so they might bring it to you. And then your parents took you to those churches who helped you understand and know the Word. All of those things, none of which you deserve. And that somehow we get this idea, well, it just it happened to me because you know, I deserved it, even when we say that we don't. The darkness, by the way, is not just in Galilee. Again, it's, it's referred to here because that was the prophecy. But when Jesus came, Luke 1 reveals to us, again, the nature of, of the entire world. This was Jesus' ministry. Because of the tender mercy of our God, with which the sunrise from on high will visit us, to shine upon those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. It is the purpose of God to send the Son into the world that He might shine the light on the sin-darkened and sin-cursed world that we might be able to understand our need to respond in the truth and to become and to have the life that this light brings. And so I'd like to focus on that for the rest of our time this morning. The King shines the light. So He starts in Galilee because that's where it was predicted that He would start. And that's why Matthew and Mark and Luke, the synoptics, really established the official beginning of his ministry there because it was predicted that it would be. And Jesus comes to those whom no one would expect him to minister to first. But now I'd like to focus a bit on the nature of this light that's shown. It says, in those who were sitting, verse 16, the people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light. Those who were sitting in the land and shadow of death, upon them a light dawned. Well, what is this light? Turn to John Chapter 1, we'll get a picture. John focuses much more on Jesus as the light, and I'm not going to try to preach all of John to you. I just, since, since it is mentioned here by Matthew that the issue is that Jesus came to bring the light, well, what does that mean? Because I think sometimes we get confused over what, is, what does it mean that Jesus was the light? So let's look at that a bit so that we might understand the absolute necessity of light because of the great darkness in which we live. John chapter 1, verse 4. It says, in Him, this is Jesus, the Word, in Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness does not comprehend it. There came a man from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through Him. He was not the light, but He came to testify about the light. There was a true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. And He was in the world, verse 10, and the world was made through Him, and the world did not know Him. So several things about the light that I would just like to take some time to shed light on from Scripture. Let me give you a definition, I think, of, of what it means that Jesus is the light. Light is the truth about God's glorious character and will, which exposes the reality of sin and calls men to experience eternal life through the person and work of Christ. Light is the truth about God's glorious character and will, which exposes the reality of sin and calls men to experience eternal life through the person and work of Christ. This was Jesus' work. And so number one on your outline is the king shines the light. The, the light brings 
life. You see, there is no light. There is only darkness, which is really in many ways synonymous with death. And so the light that Jesus brought was really the light of life. It says, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. He came to bring the message of how we might enter into true spiritual life, of how we might recover from the darkness into which we were born. Ephesians 2 is clear. And you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you formerly walked. So death, darkness can only be solved when there is light, or really life. And Jesus was the only one who could bring that because he inherently was life. He contained all of the power necessary to bring it. And he had the message to proclaim how we might take hold of that life. And additionally, he accomplished the work which was necessary so that life could come. That's why he's the light. He shines his character, his person, his work, his nature. And he therefore can bring us life. And this was the light that dawned on Galilee of the Gentiles. This was the light which began to walk among them and proclaim the message of life. So the light brings life. Secondly, in Scripture, the light then, and all these are tied together, there's pieces of it, the light dispels the darkness. Everywhere the light shines, it brings the truth about God, who He is, and what He has accomplished through Christ. Now, it's fascinating that it says in, in, our, in verse 9, says there was a true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. Saying every man, who is that? Every man who's elect? No, every man. That is when the truth shines, it brings the nature of that truth to everyone upon whom the words of that truth fall. It is the light. And regardless of whether someone accepts that or receives that, where the light goes, there it enlightens men. Now they are responsible. You remember what Jesus constantly told the Pharisees? You know, you think you, you think you are alive, so you're dead. You think you have good works. And you, you think you are righteous, so you're unrighteous. Now I'm bringing you the nature of the truth. Now you are truly condemned because I'm telling you the reality. I'm bringing the light to you. And so the light, when it comes into the world, it enlightens every man. Every place the, the work and word of Christ is brought, light shines. Now notice, as we continue on our text, if you look at down in, in uh, John 3, turn to John 3, 19. Just flip over if you're at John, in John still. It says the judgment, so this is the judgment, that the light has come into the world and the men loved the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. So the light dispels the darkness, that is, where truth is proclaimed, there is then the ability, there is then the message having been presented, the truth is known the truth about who Jesus is and what he's done. So it dispels the darkness. Those who knew nothing of Christ, who only were condemned because of creation and conscience in their hearts, they then have the, have the light presented to them through the message, and it dispels the darkness that is there as far as the truth goes. The truth is now out. However, number three here, this, issue, this interesting and fascinating thing about light, is that light repels darkness. Again, the fact that the light enlightens every man, that it brings the truth to every man that hears it, does not mean that every man responds. In fact, those who are of the darkness, those who hate the light, run. And that is the verses that we just read. Everyone who does evil hates the light. He doesn't come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. So while the light dispels darkness wherever it is, it repels darkness. That is, those that hate the message, they run from it. They will not come into the light in, in a way in which essentially we would say that's receiving the light, where they believe the truth about, about who they are, 
and what they need. So the light dispels the darkness, the light repels the darkness, and so this should not surprise us. And in fact, it should cause us to wonder and to worry when we proclaim the truth of who Jesus is and what He's done, and society says, oh, that's fine, we'll take that. We should begin to wonder, now wait a minute, am I proclaiming the light properly? Am I giving the proper message? If, if generally in society people can say, oh, that's a good message, we like that message. We'll take that message. And that's essentially what has been done in the evangelical church today in many places. There's a message presented about the light which dispels no darkness at all. It doesn't repel the darkness at all. I like that. I like the fact that if I come to Christ, I'll get lots of stuff. I like the fact that this is all about me and, and giving me purpose and giving me meaning. The world reaches for that. They don't run from that. They love it. And so when the world in general, those who are part of the world system, can accept the message, it's not the light. The word is clear. The light dispels darkness, it brings truth, but it also disperses or repels the darkness because, number four, the light reveals truth and righteousness. The light demonstrates what truth and righteousness are. Those in whom the Holy Spirit is working through the Word of God are drawn to repentance, faith, and obedience as a result of that work and as a result of that exposure of truth and righteousness. Because further on there, again, in John chapter 3, it says, he who practices the truth, verse 22, he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifest that they have been wrought in God. Verse 21. Now, isn't that fascinating? He who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. It is not as as though there are some who morally say, I really like that of their own free will, of their own morality, they come to Christ because they like the light. No, there are those who come to the light. But what does it say? When they come, what is manifest? That their deeds have been wrought in God. That it is God who has done that work. That it is God in shining the light within their hearts has drawn them to Himself. And the fact that they come is a manifestation of the fact that God has used the truth presented to them to bring life to their hearts so that they respond. The light reveals righteousness and truth. And everyone who comes to the light demonstrate the fact, demonstrates the fact that it is God who has worked in their heart. So no one can step into the light and say, yeah, that was me. I liked that light. Those other people, they didn't like it, but I was drawn to it because of who I am, because of something that I'd done, because of where I was born, because of my innate goodness. I was drawn. That's exactly the opposite of the message presented here. Those whose hearts remain hard and cold to the truth of the gospel and of what Jesus has done run and they never return. Those in whom God is working as He sheds abroad that light in the power of the Spirit of God, they come and return. They come into the light demonstrating that it is God Himself who has done that work in their hearts. Because as Ephesians 2 said, they were dead. They were under His wrath. There was no way they could respond in and of themselves. They respond. Their very response to the light is that which reveals the work of God. Number five, how how does that work then? How do people respond to the light? Well, the light must be believed. The light must be believed. And again, the light as, as embodied in Christ, He is the manifestation of God. He is the exact representation of God's character and nature. He is the one who brings the light. Turn to John 12. John chapter 12, verse 35. So Jesus said to them, for a little while longer, the light is among you. While you walk in the light, and he's saying, I am the light. That's what he said, I am the light of the world. 
Walk while you have the light so that darkness will not overtake you. He who walks in the darkness does not know where he goes. While you have the light, believe in the light so that you may become sons of light. The light must be received. It must be believed. So it reveals righteousness and truth. Those who believe, who believe the message, who believe in the person of Jesus Christ, who believe in the work that he accomplished on their behalf, it is those who manifest the work of God in their hearts and enter into the light eternally. They enter into the life that Jesus provides and the darkness is dispelled forever. And Jesus says, I'm here proclaiming that message. The light is here. Respond, believe in the light, believe in me, believe in what I say, believe in who I am, believe in what I do. And in that way, you will enter into the light and you will escape from the darkness. The darkness will not simply be dispelled and that you now know the truth. The darkness will now be abolished. It will be eradicated because the light of Christ will shine in your heart. And then number six, when we come to talking about light, the light must be proclaimed. The light must be proclaimed. That's the very nature of it. Because where people are in darkness, where people are dying, where there is no light, it is the longing of those who are in the light to take that light to them. How could it be any less? And if you knew that someone was trapped in, in, in a cave and, and they entered into that cave and there's total darkness there and they were lost there because they had no light and you stood outside the mouth of the cave and you said, you know, I can go in there, but I'm scared to go in there. I'm afraid of what might happen in that cave. I don't know. I'm not going to take the light. What would you be? It would be evil. There's people dying in there. You're not going to take the light into them. You have it. You have the only thing that can save them. Well, that's much as we are. If we have this light, if we have been saved, if we have been, our hearts have been illuminated, the spiritual darkness removed so that we no longer will spend eternity in hell, and we stand maybe within our churches, within our homes, possibly within our homeschool groups, and within our, our workplaces where we try to just gather around ourselves Christians, so we don't have to bother with the difficulty of the world and we take our light and we shine it inwards, not outwards. Jesus did what? He came and the light was sh light shone in, in, the Galilee of the in Galilee of the Gentiles and then out from there into the rest of Israel. And then after Christ's death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, out from Israel to the rest of the world, the light is outward shining. That's the nature of it. It flows out. It doesn't flow in. It has to be proclaimed. And that's why Jesus came, to shine the light, not to turn it off. Not to shine it in. As we shine the light here, there's no doubt about that. But our goal is that it would, it would reflect outwards, that we would turn the beam of the light on a dying world that has no hope because they're in darkness, ignorance, death, foolishness, evil. And yet we stand so often judging the people of the world as we shine the light upon ourselves, even shining the light in our homes. My home is well-ordered. I do my family devotions. We do family devotions every week. We do them five times a week. That's wonderful. Are you proclaiming that light outwards? Are you shining it out from your home so that somebody sees it? In our church, we come together and we teach doctrine. We're strong. Wednesday nights and we've got SI and we do all of these things. That's, those are right, good, proper, godly things. Is our light focused out on the world as we learn of the light of Jesus and he flows through us? Are we continually intentional Intentional about proclaiming the light. That's why Jesus came. The light dawned. There was no light apart from Christ. 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. It says, In whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. He's speaking to us. Why don't people respond? Well, oftentimes they don't respond. The evil one has blinded their eyes. 
But it's not like we then say, well, he's blinded their eyes. There's nothing we can do. It says, for we do not, Paul goes on to say, we do not preach ourselves, grace community church, even particular or certain doctrines. We do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For God who said light shall shine out of darkness is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. That's what he's done in your heart. That's supposed to shine out through you so that others might see that. It's the only way they will live when the light shines from you. And the Lord uses that in the heart of an unbeliever so that they understand the character and nature of Jesus. And then as that heart has been regenerated through the truth of the word of God, proclaimed by you, shining the light, the light begins to click on in their own heart and it starts to shine and fill them with the knowledge of God through and in the face of Christ, the person, work, and message of Christ. Are you passionate about that? Or are you afraid to go to Galilee of the Gentiles? You're afraid to go to those out there who are difficult, the pagans who don't know Christ and who act in ways that you can't stand and do things that you just, you would never do. Of course they do. Of course they believe politically different than you do. Of course they have a different family lifestyle. They believe differently about marriage. They believe differently about all these things. Of course they do. Because they're in the darkness. We've got to shine the light. We have to be ones who are used of the Lord because of the light that is shining in us that we could not contain it. You know, light really is hard to contain in darkness, isn't it? It can be done, but it's really hard. All you need is just a little teeny bit. I mean, if you need to take and put a basket on top of your light, if you're in a cave, if there's any cracks in it at all, what happens? Light gets out. You can see it. And he goes, let me say, as, as, as strong as we need, strongly as we need to hear the message and need to, need to be more bold and, and more passionate, might I say that I don't think the light isn't shining from this church and shining from you, but my prayer is that it would be more than just cracks in the basket. They were ripping, taking the basket off. What did, what did Jesus say? We are not, you don't put the light under a bushel. You don't stick it under a basket. And that both in the holiness of your actions and in the truth of your proclamation, the people might see the one who was shown in our hearts to give the light of the glory of God in the face of Christ. So my questions this morning are simple. Are you in the light? That light that shone when Jesus came to Galilee of the Gentiles, Zebulun and Naphtali by the sea, those, those dispersions of the way that the tribes had been, had been laid out when Joshua conquered the land. Zebulun, you get this. Naphtali, you get this. Well, and by the way, later on, you're going to have the privilege of Christ coming and preaching to you first. Are you, are you even in the light? Do you know Christ? Have you responded to him? Have you believed in the light? Or has the light still been dispelling darkness? Oh, you've been sitting here for, for, for years maybe. You know the truth. The darkness is dispelled. It's no longer you can say, I don't know it. But has the darkness been driven away because you have chosen to believe the light? Are you in the light? And I would say particularly that to my young children who are sitting here, six-year-olds, seven-year-olds, eight-year-olds. Yeah, we have you in the service. Do you have the light? Are you just in a Christian family just responding to what your parents make you do as opposed to truly desiring to do it? Have you believed in Jesus? But all the way on up, teenager who's been sitting in youth group for four years and is ready to chomp it at the bit to get out and hasn't had the light shine in your heart. You've just done it. You've just gotten through. Are you actually in the light? Next, are you growing in the light then? Is that knowledge of the glory of God increasing and growing as you understand the person and work of Christ? But I tell you, it's not going to grow greatly until you start pro proclaiming that message. 
Until you start getting out and, and, and intentionally seeking to tell others to live your life in such a way that it's an example to the world around you. It's getting out into the world. And I, I realize all of you have different kinds of opportunities to do that. Some of you spend a lot of time at home caring for your children, which is right and good. I'm not saying abandon them and go get on the street corner. I'm saying even in that, your mindset and your focus is, how is the light going to go out from my family, out from my children, out through my husband, as that is the case? How am I making that happen? Are you growing in the light? And then lastly, are you proclaiming the light? Are you proclaiming continually, wherever you are, in both your actions and your words, the whole world lives in a deadly darkness that can only be dispelled through the ministry of, the preaching of, and the belief in the one true source of light, Jesus the Messiah. Let's pray. <laughs> Father, I thank you for our time together this morning. And I pray that you might grant us grace as we consider the nature of the King, the work of the King, and beginning his ministry in a place that would be totally unexpected, a place that many of his own people would have considered to be less than worthy of the proclamation of the King of kings and Lord of lords. Father, I pray that we would not, we would not fall into the same trap, somehow believing that there are those or places, peoples that are not worthy of hearing the truth that we would proclaim to them, and that in our arrogance, we would not hide the light, masking it through our sinfulness, masking it through our laziness, masking it through our inattention, our apathy. Instead, we might be willing, as you were, to give up everything to live according to the will of your Father, that the light might shine in the midst of the great darkness. In your precious name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Thank you for joining us again on Grace Maryville Weekly. These messages are just a small collection of sermons that have been presented at Grace Community Church in downtown Maryville, Tennessee. If you would like to learn more about Grace Community Church, where Pastor Chris serves as an elder and pastor, please visit us online at gracemaryville.org. Again, that is gracemaryville.org. There, not only will you be able to find out more about the many ministries at Grace, but you will also be able to access a full audio archive of messages not only presented by Pastor Chris, but also messages presented to our women's ministry, youth ministry, and college-aged ministries, as well as the SOLA and Essentials conferences hosted at Grace. We invite you to visit us online and we hope that you will join us again next time as Pastor Chris continues to exegetically work through the book of Matthew. Until then, remember that Jesus is the King, and the time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. <music>